Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. No, he did sit down himself, and uh, he did need uh, some assistance um, going back to the other trailer after. But, uh, um, you know, I think it was a dehydration thing. At, at least that's the indication that they told us on, on site. Manitoba MLA Scott Fielding with that first-hand account of what happened at the Habitat for Humanity build in St. James. Here's the joint release from the Carter Center and the WRHA. From Winnipeg, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter became dehydrated this morning while working at a Habitat for Humanity build site in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. As a precaution, he was transported to St. Boniface General Hospital for rehydration. Mrs. Carter is with him. No media interviews are planned. I'm Greg Mackling. He's Tristan Field-Jones. And joining us, Richard Cluche, who was on site this morning. You were there quite early today, Richard. Uh, there in a volunteer capacity and anticipating an interview with the former American president. I was scheduled to have an interview with him at 2.30 this afternoon. Obviously, that's a no-go now. Part of uh, Global and uh, Chorus Winnipeg's commitment to Habitat for Humanity. So I was a volunteer along with some other folks from Chorus. And uh, working at one of the houses three houses away from where uh, the former U.S. president was at the time. And I had no idea uh, about the event until my phone blew up with colleagues from here at 680 CJOB and Global saying, what's going on? And uh, at that point, whipped around and in a matter of moments saw the ambulance, which was strategically placed right next to a motorhome. So from what Scott Fielding has told us, Nobody collapsed. The former U.S. president did not collapse. There's some reporting out there that says he collapsed. That is not true. Uh, what I can tell you is I saw everything from the motorhome on. So he was escorted to the motorhome according to Fielding. And then uh, in a matter of minutes, what happened was Mrs. Carter came out. She was escorted uh, to the side door of the ambulance and uh, she needed an escort because obviously when your husband is in some trouble, uh, they want to make sure that she's fine. And of the two that I saw earlier this morning, she's the more frail. Uh, Jimmy Carter at 7.30 this morning was vim and vigor, but the sunshine, very hot, beating down. And one of the roles that Jimmy Carter plays, the former president plays, is to do some interviews, thank the folks that are volunteering, and he was out on that hot sunshine. So dehydration, absolutely. So I saw uh, in the motorhome in a matter of minutes the former president coming out on a stretcher bed. And they use the stretcher bed to get uh, clients, to get patients out of tight spaces. And there was a stretcher right outside the ambulance. So he was, um, he was taken from that stretcher chair to the stretcher itself. And he did have an IV in him. So obviously his fluids were down. He had an IV in him. Conscious at the time, uh, alert, was talking with folks. Uh, the stretcher, he was at about a 45-degree angle, so sitting up on that stretcher, but he was loaded into the ambulance on the stretcher. Ambulance stayed there for another five minutes. Obviously, there's a motorcade that has to escort him, and they left the grounds. And this is about uh, 10.30 this morning. I can't imagine there'd be any other way to transport someone in an ambulance than on a stretcher, Richard. Well, in... 
that's the key is that uh, – but he did not collapse and he was not placed on a stretcher after collapsing. And that's why it's important to, to tell the sequence of events here simply because he is the former president of the United States. And so people are going to read a lot more into this when it becomes not just national news but international news. I saw what I saw and uh, he was conscious and alert and obviously with an IV when they say he was dehydrated. It makes complete and total sense. Abundance of caution. Thank you very much. What was the atmosphere like around there? I mean, it sounds like this was very controlled, not a lot of panic, but what was the reactions you saw? You know, it was interesting because most of the people on the build at that time were on coffee and they were in one of the tents uh, having a cup of coffee because we started the build at around 8 o'clock, 8.15, and you go to about 10, 10.15. So there was very little activity in the back of those houses. Uh, this is on Lyle Street. Best marker on Portage Avenue is the Assiniboine Gord Hotel. Lyle Street is adjacent to that. And uh, the motorhome, the motorcade, and the ambulance are in a back alley off to the rear of the houses. So very few people had access. Um, I got and tried to get a lot closer, and the Secret Service had waved me off. And I was on uh, with uh, Matt Carty and then with Jeff Braun here on 680 CJOB. Christian O'Mell is standing by at St. Boniface Hospital along with uh, several other assembled media. Christian, describe the scene where you are right now. Well, if it wasn't for the three, four cameras and some photography or some photographers, you wouldn't know anything was different other than when you look at the emergency door, you'll notice four black cars that aren't normally there. Normally these spots are reserved for emergency drop-offs, emergency vehicles, paramedics, etc. Uh, but right now, there are a couple police cruisers and four black vehicles, two minivans, a large SUV, and a Chrysler sedan, which would be part of the motorcade that brought Jimmy Carter here a few hours ago. Uh, we've been told uh, through the statement that there will be no media interviews today, so it's kind of a stakeout here right now for myself and a number of other media members here. And we're just standing here watching the emergency room door and waiting to see if anything happens. Now, normally when it comes to a dehydration case, they'll just keep people in the bed under control, just relax for a number of hours just to monitor, make sure they're not going to rush anybody that's dehydrated back out, let alone a 92-year-old man who spent the morning in the sun, as well as a former president. So abundance of caution for sure. Uh, something that they'll keep him under watchful eye for many hours. Richard, I have to ask you, as a journalist, I heard you on the radio this morning with Shadow Davis setting the scene. We could never have anticipated what happened today. As a journalist, you uh, ask your questions uh, in a in a specific and a professional way. There will be people listening right now who are asking, why are we at the hospital? Why are we spending so much time talking about this? Why are we spending so much time? It is a former U.S. president. It is the former commander in chief. He was here in the city of Winnipeg. But interestingly enough, in his statement, uh, as related by Habitat for Humanity, they said, you know, the volunteer work keeps on going, and please, uh, this is a good reminder to remain hydrated. Um, there's always a sense that you want to see that um, the former president is uh, is able. I think that the best experience of this that we can relate to to folks is. Um, uh, former President Bush, who has been in and out of the hospital in Texas on a number of occasions. And uh, it is news. 
uh, whether we like it or not. Um, I get a little upset when people are not using precise terms to describe exactly what happened. Again, I saw from motorhome on in, but there's been some reportage out there uh, that obviously is over the top that uh, is inaccurate according to the, the people that we've talked to specifically, Scott Fielding, the member of the Manitoba Legislative Assembly. And again, uh, the best evidence I saw was he was very conscious, alert, on the stretcher, protocol, observation, taken to St. Boniface Hospital. Again, 92 years old, dehydration. But if people are saying, why is this a big story? Well, it's because it's the former president of the United States. And it is trending on Twitter. Richard, I know that we've all been focusing on on Jimmy Carter today, but had it not been for this incident, I'm curious to know, what were you able to get done today? I got actually uh, quite a lot done um, with uh, my Global News colleague, uh, uh, Kim Simkiw. Um We got the, some sheeting done on the side of the house. Um, you're a builder. You you actually do some building. Yeah, Macklin. I should have been there this morning, but I, uh, uh, I just couldn't be there. I do. I do. Uh, uh, did some insulation, did some plywood, and um, tremendously satisfying. And the best part of the day is I got to sign the book uh, to congratulate the new owners of that house on Lyle. Kind of neat. Well, uh, not kind of neat. Really neat. Well, this will be a good news story after all is said and done. Lots of people sending out their best wishes to former President Carter. We will be on top of this. Christian, thanks for spending some time with us. We know you've got uh, an interesting assignment this afternoon, to to say the least. Uh, Hopefully it does not get any more interesting. Well, and I've got water here to make sure I'm hydrated. That a boy. There we go. Christian O'Mell joining us from St. Boniface Hospital. Richard Cluche, thanks as always. You will be uh, back at 4 o'clock, if not before, with Julie Buckingham through until 7. Appreciate uh, your insight, your storytelling ability, and, of course, uh, your volunteerism. Always uh, amazing to see our chorus folks out volunteering in the community. We'll take a break. Mackling and McGarry, TFJ in for McGarry. Weather is next. Uh, Tonight, if you'd like to go see the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and Toronto Argonauts, we can help you out. We have a pair of tickets. We have a trivia question attached to this. Kyle Milroy standing by in Master Control, 204-780-6868. The lines are blocked right now because I have not asked the question. And this is key, Kyle. I will ask the question. If you call in and you don't know what the question is, Kyle will move on to the next caller. The other stipulation is you have to be able to pick up these tickets by 4 o'clock this afternoon. They're here at 680 CJOB at Polo Park. If you cannot make it down, please don't call because we want to give these tickets to somebody who can use them. They're a hot ticket again, and uh, we want to get you in the stadium. Here's the trivia question. Tonight there will be a two-time Super Bowl champion at Investors Group Field. Who is this former Dallas Cowboy great, and why is he here? 204-780-6868. The phone lines are open now. If you can make it to Polo Park to our studios at, at CJOB before 4 o'clock and you want to go to that game and you can answer this question, it's a two-parter. Which former Dallas Cowboy great will be at IGF tonight? And the second part to get the tickets why is he here? 
I think that's, a, again, not knowing the answer personally, I think that's a fantastic trivia question. Thank you, Justin. I, you know, I know, if, if I may do a little bit of inside baseball here, we have this debate constantly whenever we give something away about should we make our trivia questions easier or tougher? Right. I say, let's make them as tough as possible because we want people who are dedicated fans. We want people who don't just want to win something for the sake of winning something. We want we want those fans, the people who know this. So as far as I'm concerned, make them as tough as possible. We'll have another pair of tickets to give away next hour. Once again, oh. you will have to come and pick these up at CJOB. We're at 1440 or 1400? 1440 Jack Blick Avenue. That's for your GPS because mm-hmm. nobody knows where Jack Blick Avenue is. We are north of the bay at Polo Park, basically. Or south of where the old stadium used to oh, be. Oh, look at you. Did you want to do that? And you know what? There's a little hint there, isn't there, about what our next trivia question might be about. Oh. Hey, you printed off this story, uh, and we've been hearing and talking about it with regard to city councillor from uh, Elmwood, East Kildon, and Jason Schreier. And uh, he charged a, <laughs> a, a buttload? Is that, can we say that? Uh, that's a me- I believe uh, that is the official term. It's a Six. metric buttload. <laughs> 600 personal expenses totaling $57,000. He's repaid, since repaid, uh, this amount that he charged to his city credit card. But it's it's asking, it's having us ask the question. I think it's our question of the day, in fact. Have you ever used a company or a corporate credit card for a personal expense to buy a personal item? Well, you, I've never had the privilege of having a corporate credit card, uh, so I couldn't comment on that. But um, Well, what's your response to this story? What's your reaction to it? Uh, my response is WTF. <laughs> Honestly. Like, what are you thinking, man? This is a city credit card? You're like, oh, put an Xbox and six. Well, come on. Really? That's just, that sounds ridiculous. Do you, do you expect me. that uh, that Councillor Schreier was trying to have the public purse pay for these things? Or do you think he was merely using the card as a personal convenience tool you know what that's i think that's part of the issue with this story it could go uh, either way um i don't know I, I i tend to give benefit of the doubt so i think it was just a matter of i'll use it and repay it later and then you know 600 purchases later suddenly you've got a massive bill but uh again because we don't know you know all the intricacies if you will it's tough to tell and frankly there's so much distrust with what goes on at city hall and the dysfunction there that who knows either option is possible but again he repaid it water under the bridge so um not much of an issue now thankfully uh because it could have certainly gone uh, a much different way and not a pleasant way for for many people now i have had a corporate credit card i think only once but I, this is to what extent I went once upon a time to not use a corporate credit card. Oh, okay. I was out and about doing some prospecting, as we call it, in the sales world. Friend of mine, my colleague, who will remain nameless, Najo, uh, <laughs> we were in uh, downtown Calgary, and she says, you know what, I need, I've got a parking ticket, I need to pay. So we ran into the Calgary uh, equivalent of the public safety building parked the car. She went in and handed her license and said, I know I have a ticket outstanding. I'd like to pay it. Um, you have more than one parking ticket Uh-oh. outstanding and several moving violations. Oh, no. We're going to have to keep you here until you pay $1,750 worth of fines. Oh, 
No. Yes. No. So was I'm, she aware of the, I have to ask, was she aware of the other? I suppose she was. I'm not going to try and get inside her head, but I was the guy that went back to the sales office after losing one of our colleagues. We left together and returned separately. She phoned me from <laughs> from from prison. <laughs> well, jail. Yeah. The remand center saying, like, can you make this phone call for me and a couple calls or whatever? And then my boss comes around the corner and said, Mackling. You've got a corporate card with no limit on it. Why didn't you like just pay pay for her tickets? I didn't know I could do that with the corporate card. He says, "Well, you really shouldn't, but uh, keep the colleague out of jail or bend the rules a little bit." So that's very cool of your boss. Oh, I, like, I, I, he was the best boss. Yeah, to 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 sort of have that flexibility and that. Uh, Situation. <laughs> One of our listeners is asking to use your credit card, Greg. Yeah, no, uh, not a good idea. Not a good you idea. You have a no limit credit card, don't you? Uh, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. American Express and I don't talk to each other anymore. <laughs> anyway, Najo, I'm sorry. This was uh, about 17 years ago. I'm sorry for leaving you in jail. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do it all <laughs> over exactly the same way. <laughs> I'd do the same thing. You learned your lesson, didn't you? No, I would have told, of course, I would have paid her way well, I would have done, you know, to be fair, Greg, if I were in your shoes, I would have done the exact oh, same I thing. I know you would have. I, I would have done, I would have said, you know what, I this is a corporate credit card and I don't want to, you know, get myself into deeper trouble. So, you know, until, or maybe called the boss and said, hey, you know, I know this is an, ex- uh, an extreme circumstance, but... Uh, no, but I think you did the the right thing at the time, knowing what you knew. Yeah, I wish I could go back. I would have I, I would have helped her more. She's a she's a good friend. Uh, Tristan is standing by. He's going to update you with uh, everything, including the latest on the Jimmy Carter situation. Global news and weather is next, and then we come back. One of the twelve Manitobans receiving the Order of Manitoba later on today. You know his name. We will share his story when we return. You a good neighbor, Tristan Field Jones. Well, I live, uh, well, I guess it wouldn't necessarily matter because I say I live in a condo, so I don't really interact with my neighbors. That's so funny, right? Yeah. You live on top of, beside, and beneath other people. And and I've read surveys and studies that say that people who live in apartment buildings and condos know their neighbors less than people who yep. live in houses. Well, I think part of it is simply put, there's, there is a, weirdly, there's more separation because you don't have the backyard, you don't have the the white picket fence, if you will. You don't have a lot of those things. And I really think, I mean, we had, uh, when we used to live in Norwood, we had fantastic neighbors. Now, Norwood Flats, yes. right? Yeah. Incredible neighborhood, right? Yes. Could you imagine if things were going on in that neighborhood that your neighbors, yourself, as a group, said, hey, hey, we need to organize. We need to stop this. Certainly. Do you think it would have happened? I think so. In that neighborhood, yeah. In fact, we had... Um, uh, when I uh, would have been a kid at the time, but when they were rebuilding the Norwood Bridge and they were thinking of expanding St. Mary's Road to six lanes, oh. which would have actually destroyed our house and a lot of properties along there. Sure. It only ended up being five lanes. Uh, a lot of people got together and complained and did something about it, said, now we don't want it. Well, we are going to visit with a man who has put his life's work into his neighborhood mm-hmm. in terms of making it better. His passion, 12 Manitobans are to receive the Order of Manitoba today. 12 Manitobans whose contributions encompass a broad range of endeavors and accomplishments will be invested into the order this afternoon, the 100th anniversary of Confederation at a special ceremony to be held at 4 p.m. It's taking place this afternoon in room 200 in the Manitoba Legislative Building. 
And one of those honorees joins us now. Sel Burroughs. You know his name. He's a, do we call you a community activist or just someone that really loves where he lives? I love where I live, but I've been pretty active my whole life, so I'm comfortable being an activist. Well, Sel, thank you so much for taking some time and a hearty congratulations on this honor. How did you find out about it? Uh, Janice Fillman phoned me. I was quite surprised. I answered the phone, and here is the lieutenant governor talking to me. And uh, I hadn't talked to her for many, many, many years, so uh, I was quite amazed, and she was very gracious and uh, asked if I would accept. And, of course, I was uh, overwhelmed and said yes. Uh, Sel, tell us uh, how you're feeling about this today. I know when I, I called you earlier to book you on the show, you were you seemed absolutely ecstatic, but just tell us the rush of emotions you're feeling right now. Well, it's a really mixed thing. I, I, I think the honour goes to the community of Point Douglas and uh, the wonderful people that I work with. I played a bit of a leadership role, but uh, think of the elders, you know, JP, uh, the Raging Bull of Austin Street, Sandy and Terry, Zedzora, the Rob Forbes, you know, the, the people who had all the information about the community and they didn't know how to get it to the right authorities and stuff. So I came along with some skills and we teamed up together. And now North Point Dugs is a pretty nice area. We still have issues, but nothing like we used to have. And it's, so it's, it's, it feels really good. I, I think I'm getting this honor on behalf of the whole activist community, not just a one individual activist here's the uh, official description uh, of you cell and uh selwyn uh i guess i could have figured out that that was your real first name but i've always known you as cell selwyn cell old welsh name and i should have known that too has spent a lifetime dedicated to issues of social justice and helping people and communities in need. Most recently, as the chair of Winnipeg's Point Douglas Residence Committee and coordinator of the Point Power Line, which worked to improve the inner city neighborhood and rid it of gangs, drugs, and derelict houses, he has inspired communities across Canada and received national acclaim. Under his leadership, North Point Douglas has seen a significant reduction in the crime rate as residents have worked to take back their community with pride. I couldn't imagine anything more kind ever being written by anyone about someone else. Uh, that, that's a that's a wonderful way to be described. So it was it was very wonderful. And actually, I got a letter from uh, Mayor Bowman, and there's a sentence in there that I thought, "Hey, this captures what I what I do." And it, to paraphrase it, it said, "Sal, you have held politicians' feet to the fire, but have always come up with positive solutions." And I thought, yeah, you know, one of the reasons I was quite surprised to get this award is that I can be pretty stubborn and, and pretty demanding at times of, uh, of officialdom, and uh, I uh, I do it politely and with respect, but uh, expect results. So I, I didn't uh, think that I would always be appreciated. And when I heard that it was the... Uh, the people involved in the selection committee involved the presidents of the four universities. Uh, it, the honor became even a greater honor that it, uh, you know, it was done. And I look at some of the other people, you know, I, I look at Ann Lindsay and Bev Suick and, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Paul Robson was a star with the Bombers. You know, these are these are real heroes of mine. So to be in the same list of them is quite spectacular.
So I, I have to ask, um, you know, we all know you as the activist and, and uh, the, the person you are today. But I would like to know, going back from the start, what was it that, I guess, triggered you to say, enough is enough, I have to do something? Well, you know, going way, way back to when I was a little boy, my dad used to always deliver Christmas hampers. And I went with him, I guess, when I was 10, 11, 12, 13. And, and I, I grew up in River Heights, you know, a nice middle-class white guy going to Westworth United Church and uh, really ideal family and I saw the horrendous conditions that a lot of people lived in and that really stuck with me and then a guy I got involved with the Westworth United Church Young Peoples and this guy Barry Hammond came along as our advisor and next thing I know I'm finding out about poverty in Africa and and, uh, stuff like that and uh, so I thought holy mackerel this is you know I'm so damn lucky (laughs) where it is but on the local level, we, we, we had lived in Point Douglas and went to Thompson because my grandchildren were all being born up there. And uh, then we came back. And the first day, we're sitting in our living room in this house we'd bought very cheaply because I was going to fix it up. And uh, a fellow threw a boulder through uh, the window of the apartment across the street from us because the guy across the street was, was selling meth, and this guy didn't like it. <laughs> Holy, uh, excuse me, holy mackerel, uh, what the hell is going on here, you know? And, uh, you know, I soon learned that right across the street from me was the uh, an address that had more police visits than any other address in all of Winnipeg. And, 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 and we thought, you know, we're not going to accept this. Uh, no bloody way. And I, we connected with uh, a couple named Sandy and Terry Zadzora, Sandy's, uh, proud Métis woman, and uh, Terry's uh, from Pegwis First Nation, and and they had five crack houses on their street. <laughs> what? And they're one block. And we said, this wow. is crazy. So along with my wife and I, we took this issue on, and, uh, and uh, we just discovered that the energy of the community was there, but they just didn't know where to go. So then we got introduced to this fellow named Keith McCaskill, even before he became chief of police, and we ended up going for coffee with him and breakfast regularly and we partnered <laughs> you know we it was exploring new ground because the police didn't know how to deal with us and we sure didn't know how to deal with the police but you know what now when we get a, a drug dealer move in most of the time we just phone the landlord and uh, the landlord evicts them <laughs> they don't use the criminal justice system police are still fantastic assets but you know we've got hundreds of people out there in the community that uh, just won't put up with gangs and dealers living near them anymore and uh, it's been quite exciting <laughs> so I, I always say uh, growing up in the west end and uh, hanging out at isaac brock community center it was really the hub of our community and because yep. of our involvement in, in different sports and activities all the parents knew one another yep. and so you talk about the point douglas or the point power line i knew i knew that there were some nights that I was on the wrong street, on the wrong block, and if certain parents saw me, that by the time I got home, my mom and dad were going to know about it. That's right. And that's how we stayed safe, and that's how our parents kept us accountable. Yep, and uh, I used to go to dances at Isaac Brock Community Center. <laughs> I lived near Sir John Franklin Community Center, but you guys had much better dances. Well, we had gr- the best-looking girls in town, that's why, Sal. <laughs> uh, come on, let's be honest. Yeah, 
But the uh, one of the problems you have to face is I, I used to be a rec director for the city in the Centennial neighborhood, and there were teams, there were stuff for kids to be involved with. And now, uh, you know, I go back, I blame Sam Cates for a lot of it, but almost all the teams have disappeared. Everything's user pay, so if you haven't got a lot of money, you, you can't afford to put your kid in a team. And if you haven't got 12 people, you haven't got a team. Um, you know, I had kids from the same socioeconomic bracket, and we were playing for the city championships in the old Winnipeg Arena, and we, our community center was just humming. Now it's, it's you know, and idle hands, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, we, if we want the larger communities to be different, we've got to change the structure of the recreation. The hockey parents in the suburbs totally control the uh, the recreation system and the inner city kids are lost. Sorry, I get carried away on these things, but there are solutions that don't cost any money to the issues in the inner city. And, uh, you know, we're not going to quit. And uh, the, uh, uh, but you asked a question earlier about earlier things, you know, and, and I, one of the things of getting the award, maybe think back of other stuff I've been involved in. And, and I just want to say to everybody who drives past St. Luke's, church and sees a daycare co-op daycare center there i started that 45 years ago you know i was a community development worker in the area people were saying we we need a place for our kids you know and i got a tiny little government grant and hired a bunch of university students and the pastor the minister at the church said oh our basement's not being used we painted it up 45 years later, that's still humming with kids. So that wow. feels pretty good, you know. So I'm guessing yeah. I'm guessing your mom only called you Selwyn when uh, you were in trouble, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And the kids, when they wanted to tease me at school. <laughs> so thank you for this. We could uh, we could talk to you for half hours at a time, yeah. but we'll, we'll let you go. Um, okay. Are you wearing a tie today? Yes. I gave away all my suits when I retired, but I went to the Salvation Army and bought a suit. So I will be wearing a suit and tie. Can't wait to see your picture, and I can hear <laughs> the pride in your voice. Congratulations again, Sel, uh, what you've done for your neighborhood, uh, regardless of the tactics. Not everyone agrees with what you did nope. and how you did it over the years, nope. but uh, you have my complete and utter respect because uh, you care for and you love where you live, and uh, more of us uh, need to have that feeling about our neighborhoods and our communities. So thank you for all you've done. No, thank you very much for having me on. Sal Burroughs, he is going to get his just desserts this afternoon. In my opinion, he will be a, recipri- a recipient of the Order of Manitoba. That's fantastic. I, I think it's amazing when you think of the work that he did, and he described the neighborhood beforehand, having five crack houses on a block. I mean, the fact that they've been able to clean it up, and, you know, he said, yeah, they still have some work to do, but, you know, it's it's you look at this, and it's amazing to see what a, a little bit of community activism can do to change neighborhoods and change them for the better. And uh, I, I think that's an inspiration to a lot of people out there. And hopefully there are people who follow his lead and do the same with, with if you see an issue, you can either sit on your hands and complain about it. It's the old adage about construction, right? You either complain about the potholes or you complain about the construction, but not both. Well said, Tristan Field Jones. Uh, congratulations go out to not only sell boroughs. Uh, this is not Equally uh, a, a large feat, but uh, Janet Forbes wins Blue Bomber tickets. She knew that the former Dallas Cowboy, two-time Super Bowl champion, who will be at IGF tonight, is Jim uh, Jeffcoat. 
His son, Jackson Jeffcoat, makes his debut for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers tonight. And so uh, we will be uh, graced with the presence of a former Super Bowl champion, times two. And I also know that he will be joining Bob Irving on the pregame show at 5.45. Our coverage gets underway at 5.30. We've got a weather update coming up next. Mackling and McGarry with Tristan Field-Jones filling in for Brett. Continues in just a moment. 2.05 on this gorgeous Thursday afternoon, 23 degrees under the sunshine. Blue Bombers, Argonauts tonight, 7.30. Our coverage gets underway with Doug Brown, Bob Irving at 5.30. Kickoff just after 7.30. Would you like to go to the game? Are you on the fence? Can I encourage you? Can I purchase your loyalty with a pair of tickets to the Blue Bombers Argonauts game? This is our final pair the last pair in the building. Please keep in mind, you need to be able to pick these up by 4 o'clock this afternoon. So you've got a couple of hours to get down to 1440 Jack Blick. That's Polo Park, the north end of Polo Park. As you mentioned, south of the old Winnipeg Stadium. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that maybe that might tie into our trivia question this hour for this pair of tickets. Here it is. Now, a couple ground rules. I already laid out one. Please be able to come and pick up these Tickets by 4 o'clock this afternoon. The other, Kyle Milroy will not ask you the question. He will take your answer. The question will get asked twice by yours truly. If you don't know the question, don't call in. If you don't know the answer, feel free to have a guess. But Kyle will not ask you the answer. Tonight, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers will induct Jack Jacobs into their ring of honor. What was the nickname of Winnipeg Stadium following its construction? 204-780-6868. Phone lines are open now. What was the nickname of Winnipeg Stadium following its construction? That in honor of Jack Jacobs, who will be inducted into the Winnipeg Blue Bomber Ring of Honor this evening. Greg, um, as you're well aware, we get calls and emails from all sorts of people uh, on a daily basis. Uh, And a lot of those end up becoming segments on the show. And here's a great example of something that happened like this. I was contacted by the folks at the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. And what they're doing is they're having their Faces of Mental Illness campaign uh, taking place. They're going to have a conference in Toronto. uh, I believe it's today. If not today, then very soon. And it's uh, basically they uh, highlight people who are mental health advocates, people who have spoken a lot about struggling with mental health and mental illness. And we have uh, our Winnipeg's very own Rachel Beasley. She was on the Global News Morning Show, uh, I believe, a couple of months ago. Uh, A quick uh, description of her. She said, after a diagnosis of OCD, Tourette syndrome, generalized anxiety disorder, ADHD and depression, Rachel began began her advocacy work at her high school, making presentations to students and staff. She has since continued her work at the University of Winnipeg and has expanded her platform to Instagram and a personal website, along with a book she published about her experiences. So we're very pleased to welcome Rachel to this program. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great. How are you? Doing very well. Um, happy to have you on the show. Why don't you tell us what's, uh, first of all, uh, how does it feel to be part of, this is a big time conference and a lot of people involved in this. Uh, how do you feel to be part of something uh, uh, with such a great scope? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate this opportunity. And what I feel about the Spaces campaign is basically just 
uh, almost like my mouth is dropping open every time something cool happens. And I'm really excited. That's the only word that comes to mind. Uh, it's an honor to be representing Canadians with mental illness, and especially to be the only person from Manitoba, especially in a few years, to have been a face. So I'm really excited to get that message um, circling in Winnipeg. Now, Rachel, I want to be able to hear your lovely voice just a little bit better. So if you could hold that uh, telephone more in front of your uh, mouth, we would appreciate it. That way we'll hear you a little bit more clearly. This is the day is the main title of your book. Why did you call it that? I called it my book, This Is The Day, because there's my favorite song. It's actually a song I sing in high school a lot. It's a song from my religion, and it's called This Is The Day. And it was one of my favorite things to sing. And one day in grade, I guess, 12, I thought to myself, well, I have to name my advocacy work. So why don't I call it This Is The Day? Because today and every day is the day we need to talk about mental illness and mental health so that we can eradicate the stigma. Rachel, what uh, prompted you to become an advocate for mental health? What was the the catalyst to say, you know what, I got to speak up and say something? Uh, Well, from a very early age, as you read, I was diagnosed with three mental illnesses. And I actually didn't want to be an advocate for a very long time. I had heard about people speaking about their experiences with mental illness. And that didn't seem what it was for me. I, I didn't really talk about it. And then uh, in grade 10, I got my fourth concussion from sports, and that caused me to be away from school for four months. Uh, while I was gone, I, I, I fell behind in school. I caught up eventually, but I, I noticed that people were not understanding what I was going through with the concussion alongside my mental health issues, which I had not publicly talked about at that point. So I uh, started writing a speech in grade 11, and the speech was... Its purpose was to educate the staff at my high school, St. Mary's Academy, on my student's perspective with mental illness and to show them how the stigma is affecting me. It was a piece that I think was uh, pretty passionate, um, pretty like it was 20 minutes long, and I, I, I got a standing ovation from the whole staff. So I think it was well received, and that made me sort of, it gave me fuel to my fire, and I was ready to get at it and talk about mental illness. So, uh, Rachel, you and I have the post-concussion syndrome story in common. I I suffered a frontal lobe brain injury, and and 16 years later, I still have headaches pretty much on a daily basis from a car accident. And so uh, I don't want to share my experience in detail. I've done that on the air in past, but just trying to explain to people the physical ramifications, the long-term effects of not only dealing with mental illness, but now a physical injury to your brain. Okay, well, brain injury is something that is just as serious as an injury to another part of the body, and we, we, I know that more and more now. And so when I, when I got my fourth concussion, this is when the effects started to sort of come into play, and I um, began to have headaches every day, and I still, three years later, have headaches every day. I saw in double vision for a very long time, and when I'm tired, I still see in double vision. Uh, I guess also just confusion and slowness. Like I, I consider myself to be a pretty quick thinker, but with this concussion, I definitely slowed down, and that's disappointing for me. And a lot of these symptoms do distress my everyday life, just like mental illness. So I, I find that I'm pretty disappointed, but I also know that through this this pain and a bit of suffering, I can 
I can have empathy for people who have similar experiences. So it kind of compounds what you already deal with, right? The fact that, you know, you know, you've already got uh, one hand tied behind your back with ADHD and and also uh, uh, with your other uh, mental illnesses and and the issues that you already deal with. How Mm -hmm. cathartic, how powerful has it been for you to talk about this and has it helped you in your recovery and in your uh, long-term ability to deal with all these things? You know, that's a funny question. I've actually heard it quite a few times recently, and it's a newer one. Uh, I think that mental health advocacy hasn't per se been like a therapy for me, like some people have asked. Um, It's more so just this avenue for me to share my story and to know that other people might share their story as well because of me. And if if I, I love hearing other people's stories, and when I share mine, I'm really excited to hear what everyone has to say back about their story. So I guess that when I talk about my mental illness, I, I get a sense of, I do get a sense of relief because I've sort of like let go and I've let my story out there and I know that I don't have to hide it anymore as I did for a whole decade. How do you cope on a daily basis? You mentioned that the headaches uh, and, uh, you know, we were talking about the ADHD and the OCD and that sort of thing. How do you cope with that on a daily basis? That's still a struggle for you? Yeah, it is every day. Um, well, for starters, I take a lot of ibuprofen, lots and lots, and that is actually not starting to not really work anymore, and we're looking at other pain medications. But in the topic of medications, I take uh, six medications for my mental illnesses, and those have been very, very beneficial for me. Uh, I've taken medication since I was seven, and one of my sort of like points when I'm an advocate is that I think medication like is not a bad thing, and even though I was seven, I think my parents made the responsible decision to put me on that medication. I also go to dialectic behavioral therapy at the Health Sciences Center once a week, and that involves individual therapy and a group therapy session, and I'm just finishing that for the second round because I wanted to do it again to master it, I guess you could say, and then I'll be therapy-free, it looks like. Well, congratulations on that, Rachel. And Thank you. Such a powerful message for you to share all that out loud, because really, in my mind, it's it's no different than rehabilitating a, a knee ligament injury, a broken foot, a broken arm. And we should be able to share with the people closest to us what we're going through. But for a long time, that that seemed impossible to share that this is the medication I'm on for this reason. This is the therapy that I'm taking in order to deal with this part of my mental unwellness. And Mm -hmm. for us to be able to share those things out out loud uh, goes a long way in normalizing it and maybe not even necessarily for those of us that deal with these things, but certainly for people who are coming down the pipe with it. I think that, uh, well, I'm studying, I'm in education at the fact at the U of W in the faculty of education. I want to be a high school teacher. And something that really hits home with me is the phrase mental health literacy. And that means that like basically means knowing what mental health is, knowing how to take care of it at, school, at home, at work, wherever you go, and also having the ability to recognize when mental health is low and knowing how to reach out for help. And I think that if we can get like the majority of people using these skills and having um, empowering them to use the language that they need to identify their emotions and their feelings and their thoughts, then I think that's progress. Rachel, what's your advice to people who might be listening to this 
who might be diagnosed with mental illnesses or might be suffering in silence, who choose not to be open about it, not to come forward. What's your advice to those people? Because like you said, you, you, it took you a decade before you, you finally came out in the open and discussed this with people. And that certainly is not an easy feat. That takes courage to do. So I'd, be, I'd like to know what your advice is for people who were in your situation. Well, I think that I would say keep going, keep at it day by day. I know that it's going to be hard to wake up some days, but you never know what the next day will bring. And I like to think this is the day and tomorrow could be too that you could have an amazing um, like like breakthrough and there's always light at the end of the tunnel. I've imagined my journey as like looking at these little shimmery stars at the end of this long train tunnel. That's what I like to think of it as. And I'm seeing more and more shimmery stars every day. And I think that um, everyone who deals with mental illness will have tough points that ebb and flow, but keep at it, keep thinking and reflecting and keep being true to yourself because, um, what else is the best but being true to yourself and knowing yourself for who you are and who you want to be. Rachel Beasley, Winnipeg's own. She's a 2017 face of mental illness presented by the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. Rachel's book is This Is The Day. Look it up on Line. You can purchase it online. Uh, Rachel, I found it here on lulu.com. Is there another place where I can find your book? Yeah, lulu.com is perfect. And if you're in Winnipeg, um, you can also contact me through my website, this is the day and stigma.weebly.com. Rachel, when are you going to be teaching high school? When will you be done? Hopefully in six years. Fantastic. Congratulations on this. All the best in your future endeavors. And uh, if you're not teaching at St. Mary's Academy, I'd love to know where you're teaching so my (laughs) boys can have the honor of having you as a teacher down the road. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. All the best. Rachel Beasley, Beasley, pardon me, joining us this afternoon. She has been uh, recognized as one of the faces of mental health here in Canada courtesy the Canadian Alliance on Mental Health Illness and Mental Health. I think that's amazing having uh, that open discussion, um, just describing the process of dealing with, she was talking about group therapy and some of the medication that she needs. I think just being open about that and describing that is helpful on its own, just so that people can truly understand this is the process, this is what I need to do, and... I think even just having that conversation on its own is helpful to everybody. I learned a lot today. I have done presentations in rooms of 150, 300, smaller, and inevitably there's somebody that will be waiting either at the side of the stage or at the back of the room that will catch my attention, and they'll want to talk one-on-one, and they will typically say, I went through this with someone I care about, or I went through this myself. And just you saying it out loud and for all these other people to understand what I might be dealing with makes a difference. So, Rachel, kudos to you for spreading this message. We appreciate it beyond words. We will pause. We'll update the weather forecast. And in the meantime, congratulations go to Alfred Thomas. Sorry, Alfred. Alfred Thomas knew that Winnipeg Stadium was known as the house that Jack built. 
because before the Blue Bombers moved to Winnipeg Stadium here at Polo Park, they played at Osborne Stadium, mm-hmm. where Great West Life is now, very much smaller facility. And because of the exploits of Jack Jacobs, the Blue Bombers went on and needed a larger stadium that would go on to eventually be almost 33 thousand seats 220 in the afternoon mackling mcgarry with tristan field jones filling in for brett yep senator uh kid rock i don't know what he would go by senator rock but I thought The Rock was running for president. This is going to be confusing for people in the United States. Senator Rock and President Rock. <laughs> We're President Kanye West, depending if uh, there's any truth to that. What are you talking about? Oh, you didn't. Uh, not long before the um, uh, dying days of the election, and even before that, Kanye West mentioned that he was thinking of running for the White House. You got to be kidding me. No. Oh, my God. Yeah. Could you imagine that? Kanye West in the White House? Uh, no, absolutely no. not. <laughs> you couldn't have imagined Donald Trump in the White House either, to be fair. Well, I, the, the first story that comes up is from CNN, and uh, maybe I should be uh, writing for them. Musician Kid Rock on Wednesday has become the latest rock celebrity to express interest in jumping into politics. I have had a ton of emails and task, texts asking me if this website is for real. Kid Rock for senate.com by the way if you want to check it out the answer is an absolute yes he tweeted wednesday afternoon did he say if he was going for the republicans or the democrats do you have to guess he's already been to the white house right okay yeah mm-hmm. uh, robert james ritchie or robert ritchie is kid rock's legal name and he uh looks to be running potentially in his home state of michigan if you didn't already know from the from that one song that he sang about Northern Michigan. I have to I have to take a look at this website here because this is... Um, don't do it. No, don't do it? Why not? I don't know. Don't <laughs> I'm genuinely curious to see what his website looks like. Because I wonder if, if it's... Is it just... Uh, uh, what is it a bit of a gong show? Or is it actually like a professional website with him in a suit and being like, Hello, my name is Kid Rock. As Jeff Courier mentioned in his last word... Jesse the Body Ventura, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ronald Reagan. It's not unprecedented for individuals with this type of status to uh, run for politics and even win. We'll take a pause. Carolyn Clausen standing by. We're going to talk about PTSD when we come back. Uh, It piggybacks on a conversation we were having earlier in the week about that daylight stabbing in the downtown on Sherbrooke or Maryland and Portage. We've got eyewitness account and we'll talk about one of Carolyn's most traumatic uh, experiences when we come back. He's Tristan. I'm Greg. It's Mackling and McGarry. So I've got one text message here about Kid Rock that I cannot read in its entirety. There's a certain song this listener wants to know if Kid Rock might be using as his campaign song. Uh, Look up all his songs. You'll figure out which one it is. The one that I can't use the title on the air. And, uh, I texted back, God help us all. He is already touting pimp of the nation as one of his slogans, if you can believe that. And then immediately following that, I got a text message. Nevada's governor declares state of emergency because of a pot shortage. So I Googled that. And here's why it is so difficult to share, disseminate, 
and procreate information in this day and age because three mostly reasonably respected news outlets have represented the, the headline of this story in three different ways. NPR says, and I'm just reading the headlines now because, let's face it, that's the way most of you read your news yeah. now. Marijuana shortage prompts emergency in Nevada. Tax officials weigh changes. That was from one day ago. Two days ago, Fox News says, Nevada marijuana supply running low, state of emergency declared, governor says. And then yesterday, Forbes says, no, Nevada didn't declare a state of emergency over pot shortages. So apparently they're running low on marijuana in Nevada. Whether it's an emergency or not seems to be in the eye of the beholder. Can we at least agree on that? Yeah, I think that's the best information we'll get on that situation. <laughs> I think situation. it's probably a bigger emergency for certain people than it is for <laughs> others. Let's just, let's just put it that way. Carolyn Clausen is here, and we are going to talk about a serious topic. Uh, it's been sort of a serious hour and, uh, to a certain extent, a serious show. We have had a little bit of fun today. Thanks for tuning in. Tristan's here for a vacationing Brett McGarry. We're going to be on the patio tomorrow. Sorry, tomorrow, Carolyn. I heard that coming in. I'm like, I want a piece of that. Well, maybe we'll have to have you in on a Friday before the summer Sometime, is Sometime, I love that. Okay, we'll make that happen. An excuse uh, to I, be on a patio in Winnipeg uh, uh, in summer. No yeah, kidding, because yes. like, there's really anything better. On Tuesday, there was an incident in uh, downtown Winnipeg. Some people call it the West End. I call it the actual absolute dividing line between the West End and the downtown. Maryland and Portage at a gas station. We don't need to name which gas station. Uh, you probably all know it. Uh, There was a stabbing in broad daylight. It seems to be drug and or gang related. I mentioned that one of my friends, I witnessed this situation and Ricky Phillip visited with Matt Cardi uh, while we were still on the air yesterday. Tristan, here are part of his comments and his recollection, his version of what happened on Tuesday around five o'clock on Maryland and Portage Avenue in broad daylight. I guess I didn't really need to say that because it was 5 p.m., but just wanted to emphasize the fact that there were no shortage of people around when this happened. They start punching, basically, until he hits the ground, at which time they start kicking. And basically out of nowhere, I guess, one of them... Um, I didn't even see the actual instrument come out, but one of them takes a stab at him. Um, blood starts going everywhere. Uh, the guy actually jumps up, challenges them to basically bring it on, uh, has ripped off his shirt, which is now why you could see the blood everywhere. The three of them were sort of thinking that they had finished him off and they were sort of heading back to the vehicle, which had uh, a girl waiting in it for them. They turn around, come back, and it continues where they beat on him and basically just continue this attack for another um, time. time, I don't even know the time period. It, It seems to stand still, but it was like basically another 15, 20 seconds or so. Even as he's trying to share the story, he's exasperated in trying to figure out and to reconcile how long this event actually was. He's obviously trying to be very concise in how he's sharing and and 
disseminating this information to us. But it's incredible, Carolyn, when you're in a situation like that, that you sort of lose all concept of time. Is that fair to say? You can really hear how, as he's trying to remember it accurately, he realizes that some images of it are very vivid and other things such as the passage of time are less um, logical to him or he has less accurate grasp of because um, the way we remember things is distorted by the tremendously frightening aspect of it. It, it, it affects how we see things and how we remember things. And so he's tr- I hear him trying really hard to give good time, but he doesn't have a good perspective of time because in some ways time stands still and it feels like it's taking forever when you're watching something so terrifying and so damaging and dangerous happen right in front of your eyes. Well, and I have to confess, I shortened, shortened some of Ricky's pauses uh, because they were, they were that long. Mm. And just in the interest of making sure that the story was told in a timely fashion. I shorted some of his pauses. And Tristan, we interview people off air all the time. We record interviews and have to edit them somewhat in order to account for this sort of thing. But you could hear the distress in Ricky's voice. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned, Carolyn, about uh, and and as a bit of a more background info to this, by the way, yesterday, this kind of got us all talking about traumatic incidents that we've seen and how we cope with it, which is kind of the subject of what we're discussing here. And it's interesting because when I witnessed a horrific crash outside of my building, I've told the story many times before, uh, but long and the short of it is it was late at night once a truck that was going way over the speed limit ended up flipping, going over the embankment and right into the yard of the building where I live. Um, and I was one of the first people on scene before ambulance and firefighters got there. And the, 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 this seems to be the common thread when it comes to something traumatic or even something really exciting or out of the ordinary, you tend to forget time. I know for a fact that the moment that I got outside and the moment that the firefighters first showed up was minutes, Hmm. three or four minutes, if that. That's what the that's what your watch would say. Yes, and I know that for a fact. I know that is one hundred percent true. And yet, for me, that was half an hour. Mm. And what I find fascinating is, anytime there's a traumatic event or something really out of the ordinary, it's always that time slows down or you kind of lose track of that. And like Carolyn, is this when when you deal with people who've experienced something like this? Is that is this just a common thread? Is that, uh, or is that only for some people? Well, I think what, what as you now are remembering it, you're remembering it how you remember it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's one step removed, and we recognize that when there's fear and helplessness involved, that the way we remember things gets distorted in light of that fear and, and in light of that helplessness. So yes, there's often distortions to time, and I think that's part of what is challenging then when later people are trying to say what happened, they're telling it as best as they can remember, but it might be different than how a movie camera might have had it in terms of the time and all of what happened because their memory is distorted by the trauma of it all. Carolyn Klassen, she's a therapist with Connexus Counseling. ConnexusCounseling.ca is the website. One of the most fascinating exercises um, in many university classes and psychology classes is when they will orchestrate a traumatic event in a classroom and someone will come in and, and either verbally abuse or mildly physically attack a professor or someone in the class. Typically everybody kind of sits still, watches it. Numbed, shocked. Yeah. No, shocked, numb. And then the perpetrator leaves 
And then unbeknownst to everyone in the classroom, they're in the middle of an exercise because now they're being asked for, we need to get witness accounts. What did the perpetrator look like? What happened? And you might have 200 people in a theater. Or you might have 30 students in a classroom. And every time they run this, this test, this research, there's very little consistency right. in what, different people, stories. what people saw. And I would think that in some ways one would have to think carefully of if you could even run that test on an ethical um, or the, that, that experiment or experience on an ethical way. Because if you have 200 people in the theater, you know that some of those people have a history of trauma. And for them to witness that could in itself be triggering and have them re-experience their own trauma and sort of plunge them into another experience of having to deal with all yeah. the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Especially if it's, uh, I mean, we use your example, Greg, let's say it's verbally abusive, Right. And the whole thing might be planned, but it's just if you grew up in a household where there was verbal abuse or where your parents spoke to you that way as examples, uh, seeing that in real life in your psychology class where which should be a safe environment, I can only imagine what somebody like that is going through. I mean, you'd you'd almost have to and this would defeat the point of the exercise, but you almost have to talk to people beforehand and say, "Okay, does anybody here have any experiences with all this? (laughs) Uh, Leave the room right now, but we won't tell you why, you know, that would probably wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know at what point, Carolyn, when I reached out to you yesterday about PTSD, because you don't necessarily have to experience a traumatic event firsthand in terms of, let's use a car accident as an example. You don't have to be in one of the vehicles involved. It's a, if it's a two vehicle collision, if we're getting super technical, um, you don't have to be in a vehicle involved in a collision to be involved in a horrific scene like this and for it to affect you long-term. Well, and that's a really interesting thing about trauma is, is the reaction around trauma has less to do with what actually happened in terms of if it happened to you or if you were a bystander, how serious it was in terms of, you know, if you had a movie camera, how serious it would measure to be. And it's much more about the subjective emotional experience of the event. And so um, I think often it bystanders are very much affected because uh, psychological and emotional trauma is really the result of extraordinarily stressful events that shatter the sense of security. They make the person feel helpless in a dangerous world. So a lot of it is about this loss of security and that feeling of helplessness. So there's often a threat to life or safety, but it's really any situation that leaves you feeling overwhelmed and isolated that can be traumatic, whether you see it happening to you or whether you see it happening to somebody else. All of those things can be traumatic. And the important thing to note is that not all... Not everybody who witnesses or experiences something very traumatic then experiences trauma symptoms or has a trauma response because some people, most people actually, the, the majority of people are able to roll with it and to kind of work through the feelings of the first days and don't go on to experience PTSD. There's a minority that do go on to experience this very real um, disorder that is incredibly painful and has a huge set of ramifications. But many people go through serious traumas and don't have the traumatic trauma response. Carolyn, here's something I have to add. And again, I'm relating this entirely to my own personal experience because this is the best thing that I can use for a basis. Um, After I witnessed that horrific crash, I was going to say I was outside for a few hours, but again, that definitely wasn't the case. I think it was at most an hour after the firefighters and the ambulance and eventually police marked off the area. I went back inside and I sat down at my computer because I had been interrupted. I was playing a computer game at the time and listening to music. And 
I kind of sat down on my computer after witnessing this horrific crash and and the emergency crews doing their jobs, thinking to myself, I feel as if I, it's inappropriate almost for me to go back to my regular life. Hmm. I almost felt as if I should be doing something more than just sitting in front of my computer. But then uh, part of me thought, well, what else can I do? The emergency crews are there. They're taking care of the situation. I mean, I, interfering would do absolutely nothing. And, you know, that sort of feeling was probably the toughest uh, part of coping with what I witnessed. And I'd be curious to know from your perspective, that feeling almost of helplessness, you know, like I'm going back to my regular life here, even though I saw something that was life changing. Well, I th- and I think what you're talking about is trying to figure out after you have seen a trauma and you're trying to process it, how do you reintegrate back into your regular life? Because I think people have these sorts of various feelings of I'm okay and somebody else isn't. How can I go about my regular life when other people's lives have been forever changed? I don't know what's going to happen. I'm still frightened for them. It feels weird to be doing normal things. Sometimes people's body, their pulse is still racing and they're, you know, they're still breathing heavy, even though they're not in the situation anymore and nothing is being required of them. Their, their body is still racing and they still have the energy to do something and it feels odd to be sitting there doing nothing. They have some adrenaline that they need to run off. And all of those... There's very like a wide variety of reactions that can happen after you're experiencing something traumatic. And that that isn't itself a disorder. Really, what it is, it's a normal response by a normal person to an abnormal situation. There's nothing wrong with sort of having to struggle with those sorts of things. That's really normal. Post-traumatic stress disorder is when that doesn't resolve over time, when it's weeks and months later and the person is still experiencing those really distressing symptoms. You wrote a blog a little while ago. Uh, the title was Accident on the Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. The subtitle or the, the warning that you included, trigger warning, some graphic accident into an info described. Stop reading if you could be triggered, please. That was very kind of you to do that. We'll talk about that, your mm-hmm. experience when we return. And I want to ask you about something called EMDR. I know it's something that you're now offering at Connexus. Mm-hmm. It was something that I learned about a few years ago, fascinated by it. Hopefully we can uh, share a little bit about it as we continue this afternoon. Carolyn Klassen, ConnexusCounseling.ca is the website. I'm Greg, he's Tristan. Carolyn Klassen with her weekly visit until 3 o'clock. And uh, Carolyn Klassen, therapist with Connexus Counseling. Connexus is C-O-N-E-X-U-S, Counseling.ca. If you'd like to visit her website, you can find this blog. It's called Accident on the Coca-Cola and an absolutely hair-raising, mind-numbing, overwhelming experience that you dealt with some time ago, Carolyn. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago in the summer as I was driving my youngest to university. We were a couple of hours away from our destination, and we came upon a tour bus that had a mid-50s number of Asian people on a Mandarin-speaking tour throughout BC and Alberta. And that was interesting because many of them didn't speak English. And the bus did a 360. And so we came upon 50-some victims. uh, And uh, we got there before um, any of the uniformed help had arrived. And so some people in cars who were physicians and paramedics where they were on scene and they would help us what to helped us. And then even when firefighters came and ambulances came, there was 50 some victims, right? So and for me, the opposite happened in terms of time. It ended up that we were there for four hours. I would have thought it was more like 90 minutes because um, we were just sort of with one person after the other trying to figure out how to help each person. Some of them could speak English, some of them couldn't. Um, and it was blisteringly hot. 
Um, and it was a real, um, it was horrific in terms of, you know, I will remember some of the screams and the amount of blood that I saw, but I will also remember the way people really pitched in and helped and the way the um, people in uniform and those of us that were just there to help as Good Samaritans worked really effectively together. There wasn't any territorialism. There was just like, we got to figure out how to help these people and be really cooperative. And it was beautiful. When you watch a TV show, maybe you don't watch it, but something like Survivor where they try to recreate sort of that same panic where they, you know, throw them overboard and you can only take so much and then they kind of swim ashore. And then you talk about this community that quickly developed and that's the sort of thing they're trying to recreate Mm -hmm. with a a game show, a TV show like survivor, that idea that that's eventually what will happen. Tribes will form naturally alliances will form naturally, but usually uh, under the situation of duress, it it, it gives it a, a unique perspective. And I found it fascinating that you realized how quickly that sense of community developed amongst people that, had never known each other. We, off, we really had a shared sense of community because I think we all faced this challenge together. Um, I spent quite a long time speaking with some of the victims that could speak English. Um, they had been on backboards for hours and they were in pain. And so we chatted about all sorts of crazy things that had nothing to do with the accident just to try to distract her from her pain. But then the responders, the people that were there helping, um, after the last of the victims had gone away, I was speaking with one of the physicians to see how she was doing. Um, and she was like, she didn't have much time to talk to me because she had to speak to the people who'd been really helpful. And she chased down my son, got to find that guy in the striped shirt because I got to tell him how much he helped and um, how much of a difference it made, um, the way he reacted. And it was just, it was really beautiful that as I was trying to help her, she was trying to affirm other people. Like there really was, at the end of such ugliness, there's this desire to create beauty out of it. And and there's this, this I saw this term in the paper the other day, this collateral beauty that arises out of tragedy, which is something that I think can help people as as they're trying to process the event. And I know for me, I had you know, nightmares for several days, um, disrupted sleep for several days after, you know, hearing and seeing what I saw that afternoon um, in all its graphic ugliness. Uh, But then I could also have these really positive memories to be able to integrate it. And that helped. I wanted to ask about EMDR. We're completely out oh. of time. Uh, can we ask you about that next week? Yes. It's a fascinating therapy. You never that have enough for time for these segments. People. No, I know. And then that's because my questions are way too long. <laughs> I, I got to work on that. Tristan Field-Jones is here for Brett McGarry. Brett should be back next Thursday. Uh, Carolyn, I hope you will be back as well. I might be at the cottage next Thursday. Oh, my. But I'll be back. After that. Okay, sounds good. Uh, that's uh, breaking news here on 680 CGOB. Uh, no Carolyn Clausen <laughs> next Thursday. EMDR will have to wait she did until might, later in the summer. So... Oh, no. Uh, uh, might means will. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> Kyle, Kyle Milroy on Master Control. Are you done now? Are you stepping out? Or are you here still until 4 o'clock? Okay. Yeah, we're stuck with him. Yeah, we are. Uh, we have global news and weather next at the top of the hour. Blue Bomber football, it's just uh, two and a half hours away. We'll call it two hours, 23 minutes till our pregame coverage gets underway Mm -hmm. at 5.30. The legendary, the legendary legend, wait for it, Derry Bob Irving, along with Doug Brown, the Canadian Football Hall of Famer, our Hall of Fame broadcast team, starting at 5.30 pregame coverage and then the kickoff just after 7.30 from investors group field you won't want to miss it blue bombers they're they they, they need to win this game it's not a must win it's a Mm. need win 
there are variations of those words. Must, obviously, must wins are only when you're on the verge of being eliminated from a possibility for a playoff spot and when you're in a playoff game. This is a need win. It's not must, but you can see must from where you're standing. Well, just a reminder to, I know a lot of people are frustrated with the Bombers' performance, and again, the game last week wasn't great. The second half was, frankly, atrocious. But... Good analysis, Tristan uh, Field-Jones. Well, you know, it's Captain Obvious. I might obvious. not agree with the next thing you're about to say, though. Well, no, here's here's what I might say, and I understand where you're coming from, Greg, but ultimately last year we had a, we had a crappy start, mm-hmm. and then we had an eight-game win streak, and mm-hmm. we made we just made it into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. I'm patient. I think a one-in-one record is nothing to, to panic about, um, like but, I I, but I get it. But I get it. Like I mentioned earlier with Jeff, this isn't about one season. Yep. This is about the culmination of the past several seasons. Uh, even in 2011, the last time they went to the Grey Cup, they had a blockbuster start, faded down the stretch, and then limped into the Grey Cup with a a win at was what was supposed to be the last game at the Jack that House built, uh, the old uh, Winnipeg Stadium, Canadian Stadium, and uh, really were never in a position to win the Grey Cup against the BC Lions. In spite of their incredible start, they were 7-1 at one point that year. And ever since then, it's been fighting mediocrity, trying to get to mediocrity for this franchise on the field. And that's why people are panicking about the possibility of a 1-2 and two start and two consecutive home losses yep. when the fans are coming out. I don't know how many people we will see in the in the stadium tonight, but we had over 30,000 people there last Friday. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to venture a guess. I did see the seating map and how many tickets are available. I'm going to guess it's going to be over 27,000 tonight. I mean, th- those are two good home crowds for a team that have only won 11 games in, in, in four Certainly. years and, and a game at their home field. Uh, we're going to digress uh, dramatically here. Oh, really quickly wanted to remind folks of Michaela's text. I don't know if this showed up in your traffic report about the cyclists on oh, Portage no, it Avenue. Didn't actually, a large group of cyclists heading towards the downtown eastbound on Portage Avenue. Uh, you may encounter them. They have a police escort. They are not demonstrators. They are not there to cause any problems. I believe that this is the group of cyclists that is making their way to Alaska from Texas. Not exactly sure why they would be coming in from the west. So this could be another group altogether, but I'm anticipating a group of cyclists that are heading to Alaska Alaska from Texas, raising money for cancer in the city. So it seems odd. No, they heard about it's, the... It seems odd that this uh, other group would show up if, they're, if they are indeed yeah. a different group. So uh, I'm not saying what they are. I'm just telling you what I'm guessing, that this is that group from They heard Texas. about the construction on Pemina. Oh, you know what? You could be right. The and police may have taken them around. You know, maybe. that's entirely possible. I, mean, I was being ha- partially so, no, but that's entirely possible. Yeah, you know, I was being partially facetious yeah, because smart it, man, it made Tristan. I try to be anyway. I Tristan Field Jones, ladies good. and gentlemen, he's here all week. Try the beef, um, <laughs> please. <laughs> from Katie Dangerfield, uh, national online journalist at Global News. Here's the headline: Want to save the planet? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm interested in that. Have fewer children, a study says. Um. I find it kind of now. Of course, this is just the headline, so you have to go into no, uh, no, the no. That's that's all we need, right? Oh, that's so, all we need. No. Okay, you, this has been Mackling go, and McGarry. Thanks for deeper, listening. Go deeper. No. So, uh, I mean, what happens is there's this study from I believe it's from UBC where they looked at uh, personal choices, uh, the most that have impact on uh, on your carbon emissions, I guess, 
And they said having kids can actually, uh, having, I guess, too many kids, if there is such a thing, uh, can actually have the most impact on your carbon footprint. And they put it up here about, um, and they mentioned that, uh, on just as an example, on one of the graphics, they mentioned, uh, uh, you know, switching to uh, an electric car actually has less of an impact of reducing your carbon footprint than choosing to have one fewer child. Okay, so what if you're planning to have one child and then boom, you get two at once? There's not much you can do about no, that. No, not really. much I can I, do. I, I just find it kind of the the headline is kind of interesting because have fewer children. Well, I believe that at least in Canada, the birth rate. If you ignore immigration for a second, the birth rate in Canada, on average, I think couples nowadays are having like 1.7 children. Well, the the bottom line is, and I'm guilty of using that phrase way too often, uh, the bottom line is we're not having enough kids in Canada. Right. And so for an overall global perspective, I can understand a report like this, but for our economy... Have there. more kids, not less. Oh, well, that paper just went off uh, that's my on the floor. And that <laughs> we need to have more kids, not less in Canada. Well, and you know, it's that's and it, you know, we may think it's bad here in Canada. I mean, look at uh, Japan. You know, Japan, they've had issues with population growth. Their population has been stagnant for years, partly because it's so difficult to and immigrate. And what's to happening the, to the Japanese economy? It's the, in absolute disarray. The lost decade became the lost two decades, which mm-hmm. is probably the last three decades now, and, you know, their population growth is stagnant. That's a country that's, again, not exactly suffering by any means, but certainly dealing with struggles, and they may need to consider what Canada's doing and accept more immigration. You know, the word sustainability has been bastardized a little bit, in my opinion, mm. because it's now tied to CO2 emissions and all this sort of thing. No, no, no. We, we have to find a way to balance a healthy economy yes. with what is reasonable for the future in terms of are we going to be able to create a, a petroleum-based economy in Canada for the long term? I think the answer is clear, no. I lived in Alberta, and they are blind to this idea, at least they were 16 years ago, to the idea that the oil boom was ever going to run out or that we would have boom, bust, boom, bust. How many booms are left? And that's what that's sustainability mm-hmm. to me. Not this whole idea of the carbon footprint. I think we all get the idea that we need to do we do, need to do our part, not to be uh, uh, dumping our crap into the into the yes. atmosphere. I understand that, but now let, let's keep an eye on economic sustainability without ruining the planet at the same time. It always sounds like it's one or the other. Why can't we figure out a way to do and, both? And, and that's the problem. And that's what turns off people from this conversation I about, agree. about saying that. Because on one side, you'll have people who are the pro-oil, pro-coal, pro-whatever it is. And then you have on the other side, the environmentalists who want to shut down the oil sands tomorrow. Well, guess what, folks? Even if Canada invested every single dollar of our federal budget into environmentalism and green causes, it would still take years and decades for us to get back on the right track. And the fact of the matter is you simply can't go out there, uh, you simply can't go out there and shut down the oil sands or shut down entire industries because then we would all be impacted in a negative way. I know for many people it's unfortunate that money runs the world, but that is the reality of things. And yes, it would be lovely to, to forget to, to shut down all industries that emit horrible pollutants into the atmosphere. Unfortunately for everybody, you can't do it overnight and it would take, it it will take decades to do that gradually. And if I may use for a second here, look at some of what some of the communist countries did. Let's look at um, under Joseph Stalin. 
in, in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union, what happened when he tried to force his country to industrialize. We were talking 60, 70 million people dead. So well, that's what happened. On, on that note, <laughs> on that note, we will pause and update traffic and weather and move along. That was uh, completely unscripted. Uh, we had no idea what we were going to talk about. And I certainly did not intend to throw that piece of paper on the floor. I will pick it up and I promise I will recycle it. See, you always get the extreme version, right? Are, are you promoting, are you saying India and China are levels to a reach for? India and China levels of what? This is a text at 7806868. Population was the answer. In Canada, uh, no. I'm not advocating that we get as big as China or India. China has 1.6 billion people. I think in it would India. take what, probably about 2,000 years for Canada to, to reach a population mm, of a billion people. Uh, no. But we're on the verge in our country of having more retired persons than working people. Mm -hmm. Who's going to pay for health care for people who are retired? Who is going to pay for the infrastructure that we are all demanding improvements upon? Uh, If we don't have more kids, our economy is going to be topsy-turvy. It's going to be upside down. That's unsustainable. And that's what I talk about with sustainability. There was always this idea that a tipping point in Winnipeg... To really bring it home, Mayor Glenn Murray, love him or hate him, always said that once Winnipeg got to about 800,000 people, that 2% a year population increase equals 16,000 people. And at 16,000 people, that's sustainable, that creates a certain amount of construction jobs for new housing, requirements for new infrastructure mm-hmm. that also keep people employed. And that is kind of the magic. That's kind of the sweet spot. And as we're witnessing, Winnipeg is getting there. To the point where we are at that tipping point where 2 3% a year is driving our econo- economy almost organically mm-hmm. based on the fact that we're growing that amount. We are there, frankly. Our metro area is at about 800,000. Winnipeg proper is, I believe, just over 700,000. This is last year's numbers, so that's gone up. The fact is between the 2011 census and the 2016 census, we added uh, Brandon. There's, there's no other way to put it. We basically added Brandon. And, right. you know, it's it's funny. When they initially proposed Waverly West, uh, a neighborhood to hold 40,000 people. They said it was going to take 30 or 40 years to build well, it out? Something like that. And I remember thinking, this is absurd. They're, they're never going <laughs> to fill that out. And guess what? We added within five years enough people to fit in Waverly West to not even quite fit in Waverly West. And there'd still be a demand for more housing. So, and... You know, as a city, you talk about sustainability. I mean, sustainability is something that can go a long way. Economic sustainability, environmental sustainability, planning, I think, is so important when it comes to all these things. And we need to think about all those elements going forward. When we talk about transit, when we talk about transit, yeah, I don't, you know what, can I be honest here? I don't care about the CO2 emissions. The way cars are built now. They emit so much less than they ever oh, did yeah. before. Sustainability has nothing to do with air quality. I think we're on the right track with air quality. Certainly. I don't think that needs to be the driving force. It's about getting around Winnipeg in a more efficient fashion, having people that can't afford cars the options, the ability to get everywhere they need to get so that they can work, so that they can pay taxes, and so that we can afford better transit, better roads for everybody. Does that make sense? does. We went down the rabbit hole with this conversation, we? Didn't sure we? did. We better pause <laughs> because we have sports coming up in just a few moments. We also have to update traffic and weather one more time. Or is it just weather? Just weather this time. Just weather. Tomorrow afternoon, we will be on the patio at Santa Lucia, St. Mary's Road at Marion, the rooftop patio. Looks like the sun 
is going to be out that the weather will cooperate one more time. Uh, Tristan, we're go- I think we're going to have lots to talk about on the weather front tomorrow. You're getting yes. things that you've never seen before coming across the website at Environment Canada, and we don't have enough time to talk about no. it right now, but I know you'll be watching it tonight and into tomorrow morning. Certainly. So come and visit us 1 till 4 on the patio rooftop at uh, Santa Lucia. And I don't know how this happened, but one of our winners... I thought we were pretty explicit in the Blue Bomber contest. Two pairs of tickets we gave away today. We were very, very clear about it. If you can't make it to CGOB by 4 o'clock, don't call. Okay? One of our winners, oh, I can't make it down. So that means we have two tickets to give away for tonight's game. I kind of fib to you because I do this to everybody when I need a ride somewhere like the airport somewhere important and I need to be there at, at, at four 30. I say that I need to be there by four. And then that way, if I get there at four 15, I'm not late. We're open till four 25. <laughs> if you can be here by four 25 this afternoon, I have two tickets to the fifth caller through at seven, eight, zero 68, 68 caller number five that can make it to the radio station by 425. I have tickets for you for tonight's game between the Blue Bombers and the Toronto Argonauts. Tristan Field, Jones, go. Do you mind if I indulge myself here for a second for this upcoming segment? Because you haven't been doing that for two hours and 39 minutes? I'm just kidding. Of course you can. Okay, let me play you something here. You recognize this? (laughs) I knew I shouldn't have said yes. Uh, that's Rush. Yeah. Unmistakable. Did, did I make... Did, was I supposed to not guess it correctly? No, no, not at all. Marching to... Bastille. There you go. Nicely done, my friend. I, I, any excuse to play Rush on the air. I know some people don't like Getty Lee's voice. Whatever. Let's um, ask Alan what he thinks. Alan Nobili joins us now. With the uh, Alliance Francaise du Manitoba, tomorrow is Bastille Day, not only in Paris, where Donald Trump is celebrating with President Marcon, or is it President or Prime Minister? President, President. Marcon. Alan Nobili, we are going to be uh, celebrating here in Manitoba, right? Yes, hello, bonjour. You are going to celebrate Bastille Day in, uh, in Winnipeg. Uh, and the event here is special. We call it Blues Blanc Rouge. I could listen to you talk all day long, Alan. <laughs> Just keep speaking. And actually, so it's a celebration of Bastille Day. You know, uh, uh, we call it Bastille Day here in Canada because it was a storming of uh, of the Bastille. Uh, the Bastille was a jail, and uh, not only a jail, but a place where uh, the king's army had all the ammunition. So it was a strategic place to take, and it remained uh, today as a, a symbol of the French Revolution. So we are going to celebrate uh, the French values, uh, freedom, equality, and brotherhood. And it's a major national holiday in, in France. Uh, now I have to ask, as a member of the Francophone community, I have a lot of French blood in me. This is one of the things that would occupy many dinner time conversations about uh, uh, whether the French did the right thing back in, I think it was 1789. Are you really opening this question right now? No, I'm not opening this question, but I figured just a little peek behind the curtain. But how important is this holiday to the French community uh, here in Manitoba? Uh, it's a major, uh, major celebration for, uh, I would say, the the French from France uh, Manitoban community. 
you know that uh, there are some villages in, in rural Manitoba that are very, very closely linked to France, like uh, Saint-Claude or Notre-Dame-de-Lourdes, for instance, uh, and also Saint-Boniface. In Saint-Boniface, uh, you've got many, many people that have uh, uh, very, uh, I mean, uh, young French roots, not only from the voyageurs, but also from, from recent uh, settlers you know, or people coming to Manitoba. So it's... Um, it's, it's, it's why we are organizing this uh, celebration in Saint Boniface, in the very heart of uh, of the French community in, in Winnipeg. So you will be celebrating at the Sculpture Gardens. That's on uh, Provencher Boulevard Two Nineteen. That's just to the east of uh, Saint Boniface City Hall, right, uh, Alan? Exactly. Yes, it's, uh, it's going to be an outdoor event. It's a free event as well uh, in the Sculpture Gardens of uh, Maison des Artistes, which is. Uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 an artist center of contemporary art uh, in the uh, old city hall of Saint Boniface. Um, uh, there will be plenty of different stands, uh, French wine tasting, so red wines, white wines, uh, French beers as well. Um, people will be able to taste also uh, Trappist cheese uh, from Manitoba that melt on, on baguette. And uh, there will be Belgian waffles and uh, lots of also new new activities. Like uh, uh, this year, we are going to have a, a, a vinyl record bar. People will be able to to order a vinyl record and have it played by a DJ. Now we are going to be just basically down the road at. Santa yes. Lucia tomorrow. We finish our program at four o'clock. So maybe we have a couple of beverages following work, unwind, uh, just in time for your five o'clock starts tomorrow, Alan. I, I just might have to come down there. What is Trappist cheese? You're going to have 20 pounds of Trappist cheese. You referenced it. Uh, yes. what, what, what is it? What, what uh, distincts it and, and gives it that title? Yeah, so you will be welcome for the after party at uh, on Boulevard Provencher. The Trappist cheese is a unique cheese that is produced in Holland, Manitoba, uh, you know, about two hours' drive from Winnipeg. It's, uh, I would say, uh, the best cheese in Manitoba. It's, it's produced by, uh, by monks, uh, Trappist monks. Uh, actually, they are all francophone. And they moved a while ago from Quebec. Uh, I think they settled first in the south of Winnipeg, in Saint Norbert. And about 20 years ago, they moved to Holland, where uh, they found uh, more, uh, you know, tranquility and, and it's more quiet over there. And they, they brought from Quebec. They brought the recipe of Oka cheese, a real Trappist Oka cheese. It's um, uh, it's a non-pasteurized cheese. It tastes so good. Last year, uh, I think we, we melted about uh, 15 kilos, but the, the demand was so huge that this year we brought 25 kilos of, 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 of cheese Alan directly extent? from the monastery. Sorry, Tristan, we're up against the clock. Oh, we, I was just going to say nothing beats French cuisine. Yeah, you're drooling all over the microphone. <laughs> a now. little bit, yeah. It's and just... French wine. <laughs> yeah. Of course, a great combination. Alan, one more time, uh, give us the details, extend the invitation on behalf of uh, Alliance Francaise. Yes, Winnipeggers are all invited to uh, come and celebrate Bastille Day with us from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. on Boulevard Provencher, just in the gardens uh, close to the old city hall. It's exactly 219 Provencher Boulevard. Uh, there will be uh, plenty of French food, French wines, 
and lots of giveaways as well. We're going to uh, to give tickets for Piaf the show. You know this this uh, very nice show celebrating Edith Piaf, which will occur in October in Winnipeg. And there will be also jazz concerts with Suzanne Kennedy and band, uh, who will play a mix of um, jazz music with French song with very good musicians such as Daniel Roy at the drums, Gilles Fournier, bass, and uh, and Mike Manny. So it's a uh, it's a really good way to enjoy the summer in Winnipeg. Please come and celebrate Bastille Day with us tomorrow from 5 p.m. Alan, uh, I'm entranced once again with your accent and uh, French wine and uh, a, a tapest, uh, a, a, oh, trappist cheese. I'm just uh, drooling here. Alan Nobili, exec- executive director of Alliance Francaise here in Manitoba. Thanks for Thank your you. time, and uh, we uh, look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thank you very much. Au revoir. So? You're gonna you're gonna go with me? I might have to. Yeah, I mean we'll see uh, what Mother Nature cooks up tomorrow. But uh, that's I mean melted cheese on a baguette. You have a sparkle in your eye. I, I do don't know if bit. I've ever French seen cuisine, that before. French cuisine is amazing. It's, Normally, it's the best out there. The only time you get that sparkle in in your eye is when there is the possibility of tornadoes. Tomorrow could be a very good day for you. Well, my we'll friend. see. We'll see. We'll take a break. We've got traffic and weather together. Then Rich and Julie will uh, get us ready for an abbreviated version of the of the news. Straight through until 5.30. And then we uh, kind of get things uh, going for Blue Bomber football at 5.30. Not too often that one of the top trending news items on Twitter emanates from our city, Richard Cloutier. We'll get you up to date on former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, who was taken to hospital earlier today from the Habitat for Humanity build site in St. James, suffering from dehydration. Our Global News colleague Christian O'Mell is outside St. Boniface Hospital. More on that story and uh, what exactly happened this morning coming up on the News at Four with Julie. We also will have Dr. Alan Katz. He will be in studio just to go over, and it's a good reminder as we get into the real significant heat that we are going to see for the next, you know, six, seven days, those plus 30 temperatures. How do you avoid dehydration, mm-hmm. um, staying hydrated, and, you know, those little known facts that that can really put your life and, and your health in jeopardy and just making sure that everyone is set for that warm spell that's coming. Now I can validate and confirm that Dr. Katz is a real doctor. He used to be my True. grandpa's doctor, so I know Dr. Katz is he's legit. Unlike Dr. Dre, who I'm just learning like just in the last moment or two. Not a is real doctor. Not a real doctor? Dre, not a real doctor. Oh my gosh. We, the things we, you learn on six eighty CJ. It is it is important stuff here. And uh Greg, I'll ask you this as a parent of younger kids. Mm-hmm. Do you post or not post pictures? Of your kids online. What's your feelings on that? I do there's so, no, there's no I do right sometimes. Or, I do sometimes. Yeah, okay. Yes. There's no wrong answer here. It's, well, well, there is. There I, is I a wrong answer. I think it depends on how many Facebook friends you have. If it's a very limited audience of... And they're uh, actual friends? <laughs> well, let's face it, Greg. As public people, we have a lot of folks that are on our Facebook page that I think we would call friends, acquaintances, people that we know, people that... Uh, listen to us, and I would all consider you friends. Hundred percent. But um, as far as our kids are concerned, and I've had this discussion with my teenagers. I'll share a little bit of that a little bit uh, later on on the news, which follows the four. Here on six eighty. So CGV. Laurel Gregory is is tackling the topic from Global News, and we'll ask you 
to post or not to post? That is the question. And it's you have to have the discussion with your kids. Yeah. Uh, if they're too young, you have to really make up your mind because what is online stays online. And sometimes ha- it shouldn't be there. I have two po- I have two profiles. I have the Buckingham one and I have another one. Well, I, I was just going to say I'm not a very good community ambassador from that perspective because um, I, if I don't know who you are, I'm not accepting your friend request. You still haven't accepted mine. What are you talking about? <laughs> that's not true. Uh, I, I think that's um, not true. Kidrockforsenate.com if, if you need a good chuckle. Uh, are you scared? Get in the Senate and try to help someone. In rock we trust. Uh, the hilarity and the ridiculousness is just about to begin. Oh, why are you wearing sunglasses in? in? I just want to let you know that TFJ and I are friends on Facebook. Okay, uh, gotta go. Okay, bye. <laughs> oh, no. Richard and Julie. No, why did you do that, Julie? I'm not going to hear the end of it. They are slacking off today. They're only working an hour and a half today. Kyle Milroy, our brilliant producer, ending the show with a little bit of uh, Dr. Katz, right? Oh, sorry, Dr. Dre. Thanks, Kyle Milroy. You are the best. Uh, Four o'clock till 5.30. It is Richard and Julie and then uh, Bob Irving. Doug Brown take over the airwaves. Bombers Argos getting underway in three hours, 35 minutes. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB.